12. Ver, uh, page 1878 in the Pew Bibles. And then after we read the scriptures, we'll together say the, the answers to the questions for today's Lord's Day on page 33 in the back of the blue. Flower falls and the grass withers. God's word endures forever. Let's give our attention to its reading. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18 through verse 24. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's word. We give thanks for it. Then beginning with question 69, Lord's Day 26, we consider together baptism. I'll read the question. We can respond together. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. In other words, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood, poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. 
Imagine being in the ancient world, and there is a poor family clan that lives in the wilderness, deserts. They are a small group of people, mostly relatives, live off the land, and they struggle to get by. On the world stage, they are nobodies. But a powerful king nearby has compassion on this people. He takes them and promises to give them something they have never had before, land and houses in which to live. This king has so much compassion on this people that he decides to give them all the property of his lavish vacation summer getaway spot. Beautiful houses, land set right on a river that gently flows out to the sea. All, huge, all the huge homes sit right in the shadow of a waterfall that falls down into a pool of greenish blue water. The king himself leads this poor people through a green forest A green forest full of life, yet peaceful. He takes them over a bridge that crosses the peaceful flowing river. And they arrive at their new home. It is more than they have ever imagined. The king says, be loyal to me. And I will never take this away from you. This clan, they are all grateful. And they promise to stay always in service and loyalty to their benevolent king. Soon after, however, there are problems. The people who were given the land forget. They lose touch with their king. They soon lose their way. Someone from the family makes a deal with a different neighboring king, giving him all the best fruit of the land in exchange for lavish riches and indulgent wealth. The first king, the gracious one, who gave them the land in the first place, finds out, and he is not pleased for their loyalty has gone to someone else. He comes uh, with wrath and fury, uh, desecrating the land of its goodness and burning down the very houses which he built. He drives the clan out, back into the wilderness, back into the danger in which they lived in the first place. The family that lost everything in a situation like this would probably never want to go back to the home that they shortly enjoyed. It would be a cold reminder of all the blessings that they had had, but only temporarily so. As they see the charred remains of their home, what would they recall? They would recall the wrath and the fury of the great king, the one who does whatever he wills, and though he is tough, he is fair. In some ways, this is what Mount Sinai came to represent for Old Testament Israel especially as it related to the land of Canaan. God appeared there in great fury and power, but initially it was a way of bringing all of Israel under his care, of making them his covenant people. He appeared in great power and wrath because the enjoyment of all things was held out in front of Israel. It was conditional. Here is the land I am giving to you, Yahweh said. It is yours as long as you obey me. As they reflected back on that moment later on, it would have been a painful reminder that their failure to keep the law and honor their great king had resulted in that land being taken away from them. There is a connection of the place to the message. That is what we see in this passage in Hebrews before us tonight. Sinai was a place of testing, a halfway mark between Egypt and new creation. But there was another place for Israel, another mountain, and this other mountain came to signify something different. It was Mount Zion, 
And rather than a message of conditional reward, Mount Zion was a place that signified salvation belongs to God. Salvation is his action alone. It is he who does all of these things. It is he who will place his king on Mount Zion and have his people living in his midst. Yet Israel never fully escaped the shadow of Mount Sinai. But Christ shows us how these two mountains summarize all of redemptive history, the whole sweep of the story of the Bible, everything about the plan of salvation. These two mountains also teach us about baptism because they teach what baptism signifies and what it declares to us. Thus, we give our attention to these questions tonight. Baptism is a sign. It is a sign of the blessings that come from salvation being finished, done, accomplished. It is also a seal. It's a seal, meaning something which God confirms, in which God declares to us that his promise is true. What baptism tells us is that the new covenant is not one that comes down off of Mount Sinai. It is not a covenant of conditions. It is a covenant of Zion, and it declares to us that the blessings of salvation are not conditional, but are finished by God. It is not as though God just saves his people, and that is that. We pondered this morning that Jesus does not just zap away infirmity and iniquity. He bears it in himself. In baptism, there are multiple things that we need to consider. For in baptism, there still are waters of judgment. Baptism tells us that, that there are waters of judgment and anyone who does not hide themselves in the safe passage of Jesus will experience not the blessing in the rest of Mount Zion, but the wrath of Sinai. Therefore, baptism is a declaration to us that God saves his people in Jesus Christ and that his blood is, that, is a word of completeness. It's a word of being finished and done and that we must remain in Christ always in and through faith. As we look to this passage in Hebrews, we see first that Israel had earthly symbols which produced fear and dread. In this passage, the author is clearly contrasting these two mountains, Sinai and Zion, and the effects that they produce. It is a comparison of earthly things and heavenly things. Sinai is the earthly mountain that can be known by human senses. In verse 18, it is a mountain that can be touched. It was not just that it was earthly, but that God had brought his people out of Egypt into the wilderness in order that he might tell them clearly and plainly how they are to live. There was nowhere for Israel to go to hide from these declarations of God. There was no retreat. They had to hear the will of God and to do it. And this is what happens when God deals with his people by the law. God will be heard loud and clear. And men will be left to their consciences as the only other thing that they will notice. When God's law is spoken, when God's word is read, when we hear it, we are reminded of the wrath, and the fury of God. This is why the appearance of God on Sinai was so thunderous, so severe and frightening. He was giving his people the law. He was holding out possibilities in front of them, but he was giving them the law, and he was telling them that they needed to obey him in order to enjoy the land that he was given to them. Just like the king in the introduction tonight. Be loyal to me, 
and I will never take this away from, from you. Thus, even God was giving them something good. The law was good, and the law is good. But it was accompanied with all of these dreadful and fearful things. Look with me at this passage. Fire, darkness, gloom and storm, a trumpet blast, a voice which frightens them so much that they beg to be free of it. Israel could not stand being in the presence of God speaking these things. They needed Moses to act as their intermediary. They couldn't stand to hear the voice of God. This was how it happened that God told his people that they needed to obey him in order to enjoy his blessings. We see here, in a sense, how the the situation at Sinai was a lot like Eden. But there are differences, too. Because at Sinai, there is already this presence of wrath and fury and power. Why is that? Because in Eden, before the fall, God held out possibilities in front of Adam and Eve. He said, be faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you disobey, I will curse you. But it's a pleasant place. It's a place where God dwells with his people. But at Sinai, there already is this reality that because of the fall, human beings cannot perfectly keep God's law. And so to come under the law after, after the Garden of Eden makes it inevitable that Israel was going to fail. The writer of Hebrews shows us that this is what happens when fall, fallen human beings come under the watchful eyes of God's law. It's impossible to keep. Does this make God an agent of torture? Does this make God some kind of a puppet master? No. Because the law reminds us of a couple things. The first it reminds us of, thing it reminds us of is that human beings were created for a purpose. They were created for an end. To live a certain way and to glorify God in a certain way. In today's world, we could turn away many of the errors that we hear in our secular orthodoxy if we could remind people that human beings have a purpose in being created by God. They were created by God to have fellowship with him forever in righteousness and in holiness. And rather than showing us that God is an agent of torture or some kind of puppet master who puts something in front of his creatures which they cannot obey, which they cannot attain, it reminds us how horrible the fall into sin actually was. And that's an important reality for the Christian life, to never lose sight of how serious and how detrimental the fall into sin really was. John Owen, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, makes the observation that Israel was filled with fear and dread partially because they had no choice but to pay attention to God speaking in the wilderness. They had nowhere to go. And it's because of this they had to stay and hear the voice of God. Owen speaks here prophetically in many ways. Because we see how too often in today's world, people have too many possibilities that allow them to be free from hearing the words of God's law. And as we come here together uh, each Lord's Day, and we sit under the, the reading the teaching around God's law, oftentimes it can be difficult. It can be difficult to be reminded of how we fail to live up to the standards that God has set for us. It can be difficult to hear the Ten Commandments read to us during our worship services because oftentimes we think, oh yeah, I, I didn't really do so well in that area of my life this week. And too often, people in our world today have ceased to make time to hear those words of God 
have ceased to make time to be reminded that we really do need to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. It's not fun to be brought to a place of dread over our sin. It's not fun to mourn over our sins. But it is a great blessing to be brought to this place because it brings the future of God's judgment into the present. Do you ever realize that? When you consider God's law and you consider your sinfulness and it illumines how sinful you are, that is bringing the judgment of God that would happen into the future in the future into the present. It's bringing it to this very moment. And it's telling you that if you want to escape that judgment, if you want to have your sins atoned for, you need to trust in something other than yourself. So it is a great blessing to be brought to a place where you dread your own sin, where you fear the judgment and the power of God. It's not enjoyable to endure that. But it's one of the greatest blessings that you can experience in this life if it makes you run to the Savior. That's the ultimate issue, isn't it? If it makes you run into the arms of Jesus. This is reason enough for some people to run to the God of our salvation. And yet God does so much more to pull us along to Christ. To make us run to him. To make us rejoice in the salvation that he holds out in front of us. The law primes our hearts to hear the true purpose for God acting in history. And the purpose of God acting in history is not the condemnation of people, but the saving of sinners. That's why God acts in history, not to condemn, but to save sinners. Sinai speaks this word of condemnation, of fear, of dread. It reminds us that the law cannot be kept perfectly. But there's a better word. There's a better word of Jesus Christ. Baptism is one of the ways that God weaves together both judgment and salvation in one beautiful sign. For in baptism, the waters mean not only cleansing, but they remind us of the judgment waters of Jesus. In the book of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter connects baptism to the ark of Noah. And that the salvation which Noah and his family experienced, being saved from the judgment waters of God as they rained down on the earth, their ark was an ark of salvation. And Peter says, this is what Christ is for us. Christ is an ark of salvation. We find refuge from the judgment waters of God in him. Thus, in baptism, God is assuring us that Christ is that ark where we find rescue. For he has already come under the judgment waters of God. He has passed through them. And his spilled blood, which he suffered under God's judgment, is what cleanses us. Just as surely as water cleanses us from the dirt on our bodies. This is the better word of Christ's blood, which God proclaims to us in his gospel. For in order to accomplish salvation, God did not stay up in heaven. But in the second person, he became man. He suffered according to his human nature in order to bring us to God. The law reminds us of the severity of God against sin. But the severity did not drive him away from his creatures. It compelled him to send the Son to pay the ultimate price for sin. And that's where we start to see God build up our affections for the Savior. God build up our thankfulness. It won't mean as much if we don't first consider the reality of being in the shadow of Sinai. 
the reality of human beings being filled with terror and dread because of their sinfulness, because of their rebellion against God, because of the severity of what it means to fall into sin, when God created us for something different, when God created us to glorify him, to enjoy his presence forever, to always be with him, it's not going to mean anything if we don't first consider what it means to hear the law of God. God proclaims to us in word and in sacrament. He proclaims to the world in the preaching of the gospel that he is not a God just of terror and of dread, but he is a God of finished and complete salvation. He is a God not only of Sinai, he is the God of Zion. The law of God tells us of the guilt of sin, but the invitation of the gospel tells us that, tells us that there is mercy and there is pardon in Jesus Christ. At the end of this passage, we read that Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does the author mean by saying this? Is he talking about the blood of Abel, which Abel offered in his sacrifices? Abel, may, Abel offered sacrifices to God. Is he speaking of that blood? Or is he speaking of Abel's own blood, which was spilled when his brother killed him? This verse in Hebrews is speaking of the latter, Abel's own blood, which was spilled when he was killed. We remember in Genesis chapter 4 that God, when he confronted Cain, said that the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. It was crying out to God to make things right. It was crying out for vengeance. Abel had been unjustly killed, and his blood was crying out to God. It was crying out for justice. And that is an event which is the first of an entire complex or series of an events in the book of Genesis that show that ultimate justice cannot happen in a sinful world unless God intervenes. God must intervene for ultimate justice to happen. Abel's blood cries out for God to do something. This is what Abel's blood says. Something is unfinished. Something needs to be done about this. I've been unjustly killed. And we see how in human history that was a prototype. It set a paradigm, didn't it? That there were going to be so many millions and billions of human acts that cried out to God that something unjust had happened. That something somehow needed to be set right. Abel's blood calls for action. It calls for God to do something. But the blood of Jesus Christ is the full and the complete answer to the blood of Abel. Abel's blood calls out for justice. Christ's blood says that justice has been satisfied. In a sense, Abel's blood cries out against everyone. We all, in some sense, contribute to the, dis the disorder and the injustice of this world. If God were to finish what the blood of Abel called him to do, he would have to wipe out all of our race. But God desired to save sinners. God desired to see the salvation of many. God desired to hold out an ark of salvation to escape the waters of judgment. Thus, rather than fear and terror and dread, God compels us, God pulls us to come to him in light of his love and his mercy and the joy that he takes in saving a repentant sinner. That's what God loves to do to save those who come to him in repentance. And this is what is declared to us in baptism. 
it declares to us that Christ is the ark of our salvation. It is a way that we are welcomed into the fellowship of God's people, all of whom are called to live a life of faith in the Savior. Just as each worship service that we have, in a sense, God calls all of us to faith. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to believe the gospel. He's calling us to trust Christ. That's what he does in his sacraments as well. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Have faith in him. Believe the gospel. Believe it now. Believe it every day of your life. This is how God beckons us to trust in Christ all of the days of our life. All of us, as those who order our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ, find our hope not in the terror of dread and condemnation, but in the eternal blessedness held out for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we read in this passage in Hebrews about the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, thousands of angels singing in the joyful assembly. We see how these things are being contrasted against what happens at Sinai, fire and gloom and storm. But at Zion, we see thousands of angels singing, the elect people of God whose names are written in heaven. Abel's blood beckons God to be a wrathful judge of all the earth. But Christ's blood is presented before the same judge. Notice in the second half of the passage, God is still called the judge of all the world. But he's acting differently towards the people. Because the blood of Christ is offered before this same judge. And it is of such value that it can silence the voice of the blood of Abel. Christ's blood says justice has been satisfied. The price has been, been paid. Christ lived and he died for his people. And our baptism reminds us of that. Baptism has an ongoing efficacy in the life of a Christian. Reformed theologians talk about daily improving upon our baptism. That we ought, that we ought to take from all of the benefits that that gives to us. That we daily remember, remind ourselves each day that Christ, his blood was shed for you. His blood was shed for you. There's a corporate benefit to it as well as an individual one as well. We all join together to see the waters of baptism placed upon someone being baptized. And we're reminded that Christ's blood is better than the blood of Abel. It brings us to love our great God more. It reminds us that we belong in the shadow of Sinai, but Christ carries us to Zion. That's the truth of our existence. We all belong in the shadow of Sinai. But Christ carries us to Zion. That is what our Savior does. He looks upon us, though in the world's eyes, in the eyes of the judge of all the earth, we have no merit, no value on our own. But he takes us in his arms and he holds us close. He clutches us. And he does that in the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I was reminded of an illustration that my dad likes to use um, this week as I was pondering this passage. And uh, at his church out west, just a ways, uh, they have missionaries who are in Nigeria. And uh, the the wife of of the missionary, she is involved in uh, a brothel and trying to get women out of the life of prostitution. And it's connected, uh, her, her work is also connected to an orphanage and, and trying to uh, 
build some sort of life for a lot of the children in Jos, Nigeria. And there was a child, a young baby who had been born to a prostitute woman. And they figured that the prostitute woman had probably gone off to die somewhere. She was very sick. And so she died when this baby was very young, presumably. And this baby was at the orphanage, and there was no one to care for this child. And as you might imagine, the conditions at the orphanage were already very, very poor. And so this woman would go to this orphanage to help out, and she would see this young baby, this child there, who had no one to care for her. And she would beg the manager of the orphanage, please let me take this child. Please let me take this child. Because she saw that it wasn't being cared for. And they wouldn't change this baby very often. They wouldn't feed this baby nearly what it needed. In order to to make it quiet, they would often uh, give it alcohol at night to make it quiet down. And she would beg the orphanage manager, please, please let me take this child, please. And finally, after many, many requests, the manager finally, for whatever reason, said, okay, you can take her. And, And she picked up this little child and she said that the stench was so foul that the only way she could hang on to this little baby was to clutch her even closer to herself, even tighter. And she said, it was, it, it was such a bad smell that that was the only way I could carry this baby to the hospital. The baby went to the hospital and stayed there about two weeks. She's about to celebrate her seventh birthday. She was adopted by these two missionaries in Nigeria. But that is what Christ does for us, isn't it? That if we consider our sinfulness and how foul that stench is to a holy God, and we consider our helplessness to save ourselves, that the Savior comes to us, little, tiny, helpless, can't get ourselves out of our problems, in our own filth, in our own dirt, And he comes and he holds us. And he clutches us in his arms. He makes us his own. He takes away our filthy garments and he clothes us in his righteousness. That is what baptism declares to us. That you can be made new because of the blood of Christ. God speaks loudly when his sacrament is administered. He tells us that if we trust in Christ, he will make us his own. That he will never take away the salvation that we have because of what Christ has done for us. His blood speaks a better word. His blood is one of final justice. One of things being completed. Abel's blood says something needs to be finished. Christ's blood says it is finished. And all of these things call us to faith. To trust in Christ and in him alone for our salvation. Let's pray. So indeed, great God, we come before you tonight humbled by your gospel. Help us to each day trust in Christ, believe the gospel, to look with the eyes of faith to our great Savior. Increase our love for you and for him. By the power of your spirit, make us faithful Christians in a world where we can shine our light, not for our own sake, but for yours, for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.
Let us respond together in song.